He texted me a, a meme and it said, Parents, repeat after me. It is not my goal to raise children who obey my every request. It is my goal to raise children who trust me to see them clearly, hear them fully, and delight in them. He said, you need to be aware of your horse the moment he becomes aware of you. So that could be, you know, it could be 300 feet away. It's really about that, it's that whole, you know, Tom Dorrance, Ray Hunt saying they know when you know and they know when you don't. They really know, they can almost read your mind. I think the only reason I've ever been showing horses is for the opinion of others, external validation. From Mississippi State University in Starkville, Mississippi, this is Taking the Reins Podcast. If you love all things horses, get ready for a relatable and educational look into the lives of horses and the people who love them. Now here's our host, Clay Cavender. Thank you for joining us again on Taking the Reins. Today we're talking with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a well-known clinician and horseman. Uh, been a member of the World Equestrian Games and a no- number of other things, along with uh, doing his own podcast. He does the Journey On podcast that you can find on Spotify and Apple as well. And today you'll just hear his insight on his mental approach to horses and training, and also a little bit about his life and his journey in terms of his own growth and experiences working with and around horses. Hope you enjoy. Where in Texas are you from? I spent 12 years in, at Texas A&M College Station. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I spent a year out in Plainview, Texas, which was uh, a very windy year of my life. Is that that West Texas? Isn't oh man, it's West. Yeah, South, right between Lubbock and Amarillo. I grew up in the very southeast corner of Oklahoma, down down in the southeast, almost Texarkana, Texas. Oh, okay. I, yeah. You know, I flew. I went back to Texas. Do, do you know Howdy Smith? I don't think so. He used to train rainers right there in Texarkana somewhere, but I went back years, many years ago, to look at a horse that he had for the topsoil Cody mare, I think he had for sale, and I, and so I drove from, I flew into Shreveport and drove up, just uh, straight north, yeah, to uh, beautiful drive, yeah, beautiful, <laughs> yeah, it's good country. Uh, your podcast is not about horses directly, and that is something that I've kind of picked up for myself as well. Horses are obviously the denominator that we're all interested in, but you have a quite eclectic group of people. I haven't listened to every one of the podcasts. I've caught quite a few. The last, I don't know, maybe two or three episodes ago, you had a lady named Noni Boone on that was a very different uh, perspective on things, uh, deep thinkers, psychologists of sorts. And then you've had probably all one of all of our heroes and that is ty murray on as well which is when i listened to both of those i thought wow what a different background which is really neat i think that's a neat thing you're working with so many different guests give us a rundown of some of maybe who your favorites have been and how you pick them maybe well i'll I'll give you the rundown on the favorites so actually the can i tell you how the whole thing started out absolutely 
So my, you know, back during the pandemic, my wife said, you should start a podcast. And she said, what you should do is have like a call-in radio show. Like people call in and say, you know, it's kind of like she used to to listen to a lady named Dr. Laura had this call-in radio Mm -hmm. show. People would call in with their problems. And my wife said, you should have people call in and, you know, you can answer their questions on a podcast. And I said to her, I could, but first I'd have to make sure they were looking at the world the same way I was, because otherwise what I tell them to do won't work. You know, you've got to have a certain outlook on things. And so I did the first two episodes. The first episode I did was called Changes, and it was about how I've changed the way I view my interactions with horses and my relationship with horses, and that also changed the way I basically viewed my relationship with the the world at large. So the first episode was called Changes, and then the second episode was called um, The Science of Connection. And it was about polyvagal theory and how understanding the mammalian nervous system can really help have a different perspective of how you how you work with horses and so after that i thought you know now i could field some calls but then the pretty much the first guest i had on there was a friend of ours from new zealand who uh named jane pike and jane is an equestrian mindset coach or, or used to be now she's more of a uh somatic experiencing type practitioner but uh jane was our my wife and i's mental coach for the the World Equestrian Games in 2018 and uh, I had Jane on the podcast and the conversation I had with Jane was just so fascinating like she's been a foreign aid worker she tells a story about you know being in Sri Lanka during the tsunami and you have to duct tape your um, passport to your chest and you go to sleep in case the tsunami comes and washes you away and you know she's lived in an ashram in India and a lot of those sorts of things and after I had that conversation with Jane I'm like no that's what I want to do people need to hear stories from people like that and so then you know and i knew enough people like that so i i just started getting people that i knew and then people that i knew of but i didn't really know them you know and i'd reach out and then you know the podcast guests have sometimes they come from other guests sometimes a name just pops up and i'm like you're fascinating you want to be in my podcast so that's kind of how that came about and as far as favorites jane you know jane she's been on there twice she's a favorite one of the ones I had on earlier on was a guy named Rupert Isaacs, and I'm not sure if you ever heard of Rupert. Uh, no, I don't think so. So Rupert uh, wrote a book called The Horse Boy and made a documentary film called The Horse Boy. So Rupert has a, an autistic son named Rowan, and when Rowan was younger, he um, had a lot of problems with his, you know, that are attached to his autism. You know, he had a lot. He was incontinent, had these emotional outbursts and also um, did not play with other kids his own age, didn't kind of connect with them. And so he actually went to Mongolia, to the horse shamans in Mongolia, to do some healing to help Rowan with with his some of the symptoms of his autism. And I watched that documentary and I thought, yeah, this guy's fascinating. But then I found out that he spent a lot of time with the Khoisan Bushmen of the Kalahari in Botswana. And that hunter-gatherer thing kind of fascinates me quite a bit and so Rupert actually took the Bushmen to the United Nations and won Botswana's biggest uh, land rights claim and so he's officially banned from Botswana by the Botswana government because he gave half their their land away. He was an early favourite because some of the stories he told me about the senses 
that the Bushmen had that we don't have, which, you know, from other guests I found out we should have them. We're kind of born with them and our society drums us out of them, you know. And so, yeah, Rupert was a, a favourite early on and he really inspired me to find more people who operate on a different level than we do, like have senses that we, most of us, uh, don't think we possess. And the whole point is trying to get people to understand that you can do some work and you can you can experience a lot more of the world than than our five senses allow us to do. Well, I think that's kind of what intrigued me about Noni was what she called archetypes. Uh, archetypes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And she just got into this. And at first, I'll be, I'll be truthful. Being from the South, I think conservatism is probably a thing that we have born innately into us. But so I was, really wasn't into it all that much. And the more she explained it, I thought, wow, she has a point. Like that, that makes a lot of sense, and and the way she went through it, kind of pragmatically, was good perspective in the end. Yeah, you know, I've had I had a lady on recently, and she was a, a psychiatrist from North Carolina, I think. You know, like did ten years of postdoc work, has all the degrees up to yin yang, and was a you know a clinical psychologist. And one day she was working with a client in her office. And suddenly she started hearing this voice that was telling me it was the telling her it was the grandmother of the person that she was talking to, and she wanted to, the grandmother wanted to give her a message. And this lady, you know, this psychiatrist lady is like, "Am I going crazy?" And now she is a she's a, a shaman, and she goes to Mongolia every year with the shamans up there, and like took a complete 180 in her life. Like none of that paranormal stuff was anything that she even thought about you know and then i haven't published this one yet it's coming out soon but i talked recently to a man and a woman they were both in the coast guard and both basically had that conservative worldview that you were brought up with and he ended up turns out he started getting these voices and he turned out he's a channel so he like he goes into a trance and he channels all sorts of things whether it's the collective consciousness of certain types of animals i watched him on a youtube video he was channeling the collective consciousness of bees so basically bees were telling us what they think about the world and <laughs> there's been some interesting stuff and it's taken me down some rabbit holes into some places i you know a few years ago i thought you'd never get me there but these days i've experienced enough stuff now that is completely different than the way i was raised to understand there's a whole lot more to the world than some of the stories we've been you know then you went, went totally to the other spectrum and i would say that ty murray is what we all in the horse world envision a cowboy to be rough tough no nonsense pretty down to earth kind of guy where does he fall in the uh, spectrum of the type of people that you've interviewed because you've got i want to say it's over 130 episodes so you're you're no newbie here you've been experienced in the world of podcasting i had ty on the uh, actually at the recommendation of another podcast guest. Her name's Kansas Carradine. So Kansas is the daughter of David Carradine. If you ever saw that Kung Fu TV show back, you're younger than me, so maybe you need to see it. For the younger audience, if you've ever seen Kill, the movie, Quentin Tarantino movie, Kill Bill, her dad was Bill. And Kansas was a, a trick writer in Cavalier. And her husband was the artistic director of Cavalier. Anyway, she, she was she met Ty somewhere, and she said, "You really should have him on the podcast." And I thought, "Okay, well, if you think so." And yeah, Ty was fascinating because one of the things about you know I've had lots of therapists on the podcast, and I've been deep on my own dive into my own stuff, and I've come to realize that a lot of very successful people are driven by 
traumas in their life, you know, like dad didn't pay enough attention or whatever. A lot of very successful people are actually not terribly happy, even though successful, because there's this underlying thing that drives them. And I just assume that, I imagine Ty might be a bit that way too, but he, he's, you know, what he's achieved, he seems to be the guy, the only thing he does that, he does hard things to challenge himself. He doesn't care what anybody else thinks about the things he challenges himself with and it's it's kind of rare to find someone who's has been that successful at something like the very best in the world at something who wasn't driven by some stuff i didn't find that at all in there with him and i've since spent some time with him in person and i get the same thing there and you know after i'd had him on the podcast one day he, he texts me so th this will give you a bit of an insight into the time Murray you might not really know but he texted me a, a meme and it said parents repeat after me it is not my goal to raise children who obey my every request it is my goal to raise children who trust me to see them clearly hear them fully and delight in them daily trust is more powerful than fear connection lasts longer than control then he said I thought of the, you when I saw this fits pretty darn good with the horses as well Ty really looks at things on quite a bit of a deeper level, especially with the horses, you know, like uh, one of the lines that he said on the podcast, when I had him on the podcast was, and I, I, I went to get back to it and we got lost on another thought process, but he said, you need to be aware of your horse the moment he becomes aware of you. So that could be, you know, it could be 300 feet away. It's really about that, it's that whole, you know, Tom Dorrance, Ray Hunt saying they know when you know and they know when you don't. They really know, they can almost read your mind. And so if you're, if they become aware of you and they know you're not aware of them, you're not that aware, you know what I mean? So yeah, so yeah, Ty was, Ty was fascinating. I would classify you as a horse trainer amongst other things. And, but I know so many horse trainers, that's the world I grew up in. And what you're faced with, kind of what you just said there, being that awareness of those small microcosms the horse throws at us, uh, in awareness, it's very different from the horse training world. They're they're tuning in in a different way. But what you have to do when you're dealing with the public in general, problematic horses, spur of the moment kind of thing, is intriguing to me quite a bit. I know some guys like you, like Cole Cameron, um, Cal Middleton, Taylor McIntosh, some of those guys that are doing the same kind of stuff you're doing, and the awareness they have of all types of issues going on with me is very intriguing. Have you seen over the 130 plus episodes you've had, is your podcast, how has it grown? How has the influence of those people affected uh, your audience and how is it growing? Well, you know, it's a surprise to hell of me, but you know, I'm not much of a planner. I've always been like, oh, this is what interests me. I'm gonna go here. This is what interests me, I'm gonna go here. And the podcast was one of those. It wasn't like, okay, the plan is we're gonna have this podcast and then we're gonna do this and it's gonna turn to that. It was just, you know, it was kind of a labor of love. Like we don't have sponsors on the podcast. I just wanted to share information. I mean, that's how my whole business kind of started. But we've had three podcast summits now. Last year, we decided we were gonna have a you know, we kind of got, my wife and I got to talking like, how cool would it be if you had all these fascinating people in one place at the same time, like presenting? So we had a we had a podcast summit in San Antonio, Texas last November, where we had 22 of the first year's 
podcast guest came and presented over three days to a room of, you know, 250 or so people. So we got to hear a lot of stories from people there of how, of how the podcast has affected them. And it's really, you know, some of these people have had major life changes from listening to the podcast. And I think, and I, you know, I do a lot of horse expos and you have people come up to the booth and they're like, when they come up and talk to me, they usually quite teary eyed and things like that and I think what the podcast has done is there'll be something somebody says that you think about you know you said about your conservative upbringing you have these truths in your life like these things are true you don't don't go on the sword kind of protecting that your idea that this is true and if I think what happens on the podcast is people get one of the truths shattered to where I thought the world was this way in this particular sphere or subject and it's not and it was only because I was looking at it a different way and then they kind of I think they start going well how else do I look at the world that could be different and it leads them down rabbit holes and yeah it's that sort of thing I think has been life-changing for a lot of people and like I said we've had three podcast summits now two in Texas one last year one just recently and then one in Australia earlier this year and so yeah you get to get up close and personal with the listeners and and hear their stories and and yeah the guests that i've had have certainly changed people's lives you've also done something that a lot of people are trying to do and i think you've done it very well as you're trying to do especially once COVID hit everyone's trying to do these online video resource banks of different things correct me if i'm wrong but i looked at yours you have over 800 videos in your library that people can access through your website which is incredible and the topics are, again, like your podcast episodes, vastly different. You've got some basic training stuff in there on the ground and on the horse, things that people encounter on trail riding problems, basic problems, even foal handling. That's quite a diverse group of topics. Tell me how your education's evolved into understanding the horse the way you do. So for me, I, you know, I, I trained for quite a long time. I trained reining horses and I, you know, I took in problem horses and i was always quite good at you know with the problem horse like i'd get big warm bloods that buck and rear and bolt and things like that and funnily enough the reason people send them to me is because i wear a cowboy hat and i think i'm going to ride the buck out of them but i was always quite good at being able to go back to the beginning and and filling in the missing pieces that are causing the problems you know i didn't over address the buck or the rear of the bolt i you know i was quite good at that and you know i had the video library i'm training horses i'm going around the world doing clinics and then about seven years ago, my wife bought a reining horse and he was a phenomenal athlete, but they couldn't get him shown because he had a few quirks. He'd spook at the judges' chairs and some things like that, you know. And I'm like, yeah, buy him. I can, you know, he was priced a lot less than his talent was worth mm-hmm. because he, you just couldn't get it all put together in the show pen. Like, yeah, I can, I can solve those problems. That's not a, not a big deal. And turned out I couldn't. I couldn't solve, I could, yeah, spook at the judges' chest, things like that. that. That was kind of easy, but there was an underlying level of tension in this horse that didn't come out anywhere bad, but like running fast circles and stuff, he'd bounce his hind feet together, you know, so you get a point penalty here and there and everywhere. He could mark a 74, but he ended up with a 70 because he bounces his hind feet together once in each large fast circle sort of thing. And I could not train him to be any different. And so he really made me stop and think like, you know, I was always an outside-the-box thinker, but I was outside the box and then outside the other box and outside a further box, but all those boxes were under the umbrella of training. 
and he was the one that kind of made me look outside the box of training into and what branched out into relationship you know and that led me down the rabbit hole of been down the last seven years but you know he he led me down uh he led me to look at things stuff that in the past i would have categorized as crazy cat lady land sort of thing you know what i mean you know like that those people that don't know what they're doing with their horses they don't know how to train a horse they love it on them and you know whatever you know i used to think that's that's for the birds but this horse really got me to think okay what you doing doesn't work with him and so what i've found you know since then is that if you can have that relationship first and i don't mean because you want it to be warm and fuzzy but if you understand the mammalian nervous system and the need for connection like you think about when things go wrong and a horse goes into fight or flight and if that doesn't work your next option is freeze that's worse than fight or flight but there's another as everybody thinks about those three f's but there's another f that comes before that and that's friendship and so when the horse gets a bit worried about something the first thing to do is like well, what are my friends doing? Uh, you know, hey, are you okay? Sort of thing. And a lot of times with horsemanship, you're taught, you know, this is my space, this is your space, you can't come in my space. And a, a lot of times I think what happens early on is horses want to come up to us and kind of connect with us like, hey, you, can you be my friend? And you're like, no, you can't be my friend. And now you've missed that opportunity to soothe the nervous system. So you're, now you're dealing with a horse that's in one of those other states, varying degrees of one of those other states. And then you become very good at training horses while they're in varying degrees of those states and then you get good at patting yourself on the back and say yeah i'm a good horse trainer whereas i realize now a lot of the techniques and the training i had to do in the past i don't have to do anymore because i'm not dealing with a horse who is has got a bit of a dysregulated nervous system and I've seen some of that in my own maturity of training horses, too. I'm sure we've all been there when you've had – I can think back to two horses I was riding simultaneously. And one of them, I'm telling you, I could read his mind. I could feel the way he was thinking. And his response to the training process was, yes, sir, what would you like me to do? And and if he if he went off script, it really bothered him. You could just feel it. And he was so fun and so easy to train, and I gravitated so easily to him because that was easy. And he makes you feel like you know what you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah, I felt <laughs> like I was getting something done, right? But then I could get off him, put him on the fence, get on the other one, and she was completely opposite. Of course, she was a bay mare, but she was the complete opposite. If you tried to force your hand in any way, any capacity, she was going to resist. And not only resist, but go to her grave resisting if she could, if she had to. And it was the first time, and that was, you know, later into my training experiences that I thought, wow, we are the ones that have to adapt, I think, now. And so that's something I've started teaching with the college students I ride with and people I ride with when I teach clinics is we all want to say this isn't working because this horse doesn't want to do it or isn't good at it. When in actuality, we probably should be self-reflective, and that's kind of the—that's kind of what I heard when you were saying that. Is if we look at ourselves and our communication with the horse instead of him having to adapt to us, maybe we need to adapt to him to get something done. It may work better. A lot of what I'm kind of unraveling on the podcast, and I talk about it quite a bit in my teaching when I'm helping people with their horses, is 
you know, we have been sold a bit of a bill of goods that's not quite right. You know, like the interpretation of Darwin's, you know, survival of the fittest sort of thing. We've always been thought that means the survival of the strongest, you know what I mean? But it's really about the survival of the most collaborative, you know. There's a cycle in nature and everything supports everything else. And, and you know, we've been raised with the fact there's kings and queens and prime ministers and presidents and things like that. Whereas, you know, Rupert Isaacson was actually the one that really made me think about this. He talked about doing, because uh, he was a documentary filmmaker, and he talked about doing documentary films with, say, you know, hunter-gatherers. And when you go out into the desert and you find these hunter-gatherers, this one guy comes out to talk to you and you're the guy, he's the guy you interact with and we tend to think he's the chief. But in hunter-gatherer society, everybody does everything for the good of the whole and everybody does the job they're best suited for for the good of the whole and this guy obviously must be the guy who's better at maybe he speaks english you know maybe he's dealt with outsiders before and it's the same thing in horse herds we've been told about this dominance theory and you know there's a hierarchy and all that sort of stuff but that is not really the case in herds of horses when there's conflict the way it's been ex the best way it's been explained to me is when there's conflict there's conflict over who's the best horse for a particular job they're arguing over a job and so they're arguing over a job because the herd wants the best horse for that role to be in that role and i've heard it's it said that the the more conflict you see is when you've got two horses who are equally as assertive as each other who are suited for the same role, and then you get all this arguing, but we tend to think it's about being the most dominant, whereas it's not. They're doing it for the protection of everybody else. It's not selfish, it's, it's for the whole. And that's been a game changer for me because helping people understand that, I try to tell them that your interactions with your horse are like a, you know, like a bit of a job interview. And it takes away the perspective of, oh, you know, I have to be the leader sort of thing. It really is a bit of a game changer as far as the way people look at their problems because, you know, with any horse, the way you look at what they're presenting to you, you know, you basically create your own reality. So if you're looking at things, you know, they're trying to put it over you sort of a way, you'll try to put it over them and then you'll get a response back from them according to how you reacted to them. But that's not necessarily what's going on. You know, I had. You would have heard of Mark Rashid, horseman Mark Rashid, mm -hmm. written a lot of books. You know, and I had him on the podcast. He's really big into a martial art called Aikido. And he talked about a concept called a mind like still water. And he said, if you go out in the morning to a pond before the breeze picks up, and that pond is perfectly still, when you stand on one side of that pond, when you look into the pond, you get a direct reflection, an exact reflection of what's on the other side of that pond. But if you pick up a stick or a stone and throw it into that pond, you will change the reflection of that thing on the other side of the pond. The thing's still the same, but the reflection of it is different because you're, you're putting your stuff in there. If you jump in that pond and start splashing around, what you're looking at, the reflection, is completely different. And he said it's the same with horses. And so you've got to have a mind like still water. You've got to be able to see what's going on without projecting your garbage into there as well and that's you know that for me that's where the whole mental health part of the whole thing comes into helping people with horses is helping them understand where some of their perceptions come from because until you change your perceptions about what's going on a lot of times people are still going to have 
keep having the same problems I had before. And that was exactly my point with the example I gave. As long as I kept my perspective, my way of the highway, the, the one horse was hard to ride, uh, almost impossible. The, the more I changed and adapted to what she needed, this I'm telling you, I'm, I still have her today, and she is solid as a rock. She, yeah. she is so good and been very, very consistent, shows well, just a great horse. But in the beginning, it was tough. Do you have an example of something that you've seen just from the common horse owner in some of your clinics that maybe they, this example would be applicable to? You know, probably the biggest one is something I've been doing for a number of years now. When a horse wants to put their mouth on me with their lips or their teeth or whatever, I don't think of it as nipping anymore. I think they want to engage with you. And I'll just let them like lip the flat of my hand or scrape their teeth on it or whatever. And it, there seems to be a need for horses to do that. And when you allow them to do it enough, they stop doing it and and this came about my wife bought another reigning horse a few years back and uh, he's one of those ones when you have him tied up he's chewing on the lead rope and he's just nang, 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 nang. but it was that was an anxiety thing and you know she thought he was a bit of a turd and um, I one day I thought you know what we're treating him like he's a turd what if that all that chewing on the lead rope wanting to put their mouth on you and chew on your shirt and chew on things what if he's not trying to nip me and so I started interacting with him differently and um, the, the, he changed completely. And, you know, this is years after that first horse. So I'd had a bit of a, you know, I, I had a better idea how to look at things differently. But since then, that's been one of the major changes I've seen. It's I talked before about that whole friend thing, you know, they want to go, can you be my friend? And if you can't, you know, now you're going to go into fight, flight, freeze, whatever. Um, it's part of that, that friend thing, I think. But that's a that is a huge you know i've had horses at clinics that i had a big warm blood at a clinic last year in maryland this lady was a dressage trainer she did a great job with this horse she's done all the techniques but this horse had this weird energy on the ground like he was mm, a bit add sort of adhd sort of a thing and she couldn't train that thing out of him and when i was i was watching her with him on the ground and he'd kind of come up and want to engage with her and she'd kind of say no you can't sort of thing not in a bad way but just not meeting that need and I said let me have him for a second and I took the lead rope and he'd come up to say hi and I just let him say hi and rub on my hand lick on my hand whatever and probably within five or ten minutes of doing that that nervous energy that he had just dissipated and it's like you know all the training that she put into him could now come out easily um, so yeah that little things like that you know there's a, a couple in washington state named john and julie gottman and they have a thing called the gottman institute and they are the united states leading experts on relationships human relationships especially marital relationships like they can watch a video of a, a, a married couple conversing for five minutes and they can tell you within 75 percent accuracy whether they'll still be married five years from now from a five minute video one of the things they look can they for do that they, before they get married because that would be a money maker uh, yeah yes yes yes, yes they can, <laughs> yeah um and one of the things they look for in watching couples is what they call bids for connection and a bid for connection is just some way of, of trying to connect it might be just something subtle you say and those bids for connection can be met one of three ways turning towards so basically agreeing with it or, or accepting that bid for connection turning away is kind of just blowing off that big connection or turning against which is 
arguing against that bit for connection. And an example that I use is, let's say, like tonight, today it's quite a nice day outside. Let's say my wife and I were outside and I said, boy, it's a nice day out here. That's my bid for connection. Now, let's say she turned towards, she would go, yes, it's a beautiful day out here, isn't it? Turning away would be kind of, mm, kind of shrugging it off and turning against would be, don't be stupid, there's a cold breeze. And the Gottman say that you've got to have 10 turn towards for every one turn away or against in order for the relationship to work. And I talk about this a lot with horses, you know, like this, this, this particular horse, this big warm blood, he would come up to her, he had a big connection, like, hey, anyone, can I say hi? No, don't say hi. So she, she was either ignoring him, so turning away, or she was actually slapping him on the nose, and like, hey, don't do that, turning against. And so I don't think, you know, human relationships and relation, horses' relationships are, are very different. And, you know, in the whole horsemanship community, it's like, you know, you don't ever let your horse touch you and if they can't bite you and you don't, you tell them they can't do that and whatever. But if you can change your perception of what they're doing, um, you know, we've got a, a stallion here that we bought a few years ago and he was very mouthy when we first got him. And I would spend lots and lots of time doing that with him. And you think, oh, that's going to make a stallion bite. No, it, it went away. He was a whole lot more relaxed around people. It's, it's, it's one of those game changes where you just got to change. You know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Wayne Dyer's quote, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And, and with horses, it's when you can change the way you look at horses that's different from the way a lot of horsemanship is. You know, like a big one, that whole move their feet thing you know um, I really feel that moving a horse's feet is a bit like the um, parenting style that I grew up with which is stop crying I'll give you something to cry about you know if you think about you know a child and they're they're worried about something and so they express that to their one caregiver they've got which would be your mother and the caregiver says, stop crying, I'll give you something to cry about. So basically, stop showing me your concern or I'll do something to you that makes you more concerned about me than the thing you're concerned about. How's that child feel? Alone. Like I've got no one I can turn to. And I really feel like a lot of times with horsemanship, you're told to move their feet. If they don't want to stand still, move their feet till they want, you know, till they want to stand still. It's effective, it works, and it makes very obedient horses. But, you know, I think for me personally, I grew up very obedient. And as I've gotten older and, you know, you have your midlife crisis and you start staring at your belly button for a while and you start to unravel some of the perceptions you have about yourself and the world, you realize that, huh, Mere obedience is not all there is to it. It's just like that quote I read before that Ty Murray sent me, you know. And I found with horses it's the same, you know. Really, that whole, uh, well, what I call it is communicating awareness, you know. You communicate your awareness of their awareness and it seems to soothe their nervous system and they, they feel totally comfortable around you. And there's just so much stuff you don't have to train them to do, you know. Is this evolution in mindset and thought perspective on the horse is that the reason you changed from work shiller performance horses to attuned horsemanship yeah well you know i come at the science from the back end so i figure things out intuitively with horses and i figure out what works and what doesn't and then what seems to happen is a few years later i read stuff that scientifically proves why i've 
why the thing I'm now doing works better than the other thing I was doing, you know. And I first heard the term attunement in a book by a UCLA professor of psychology named Daniel Siegel. He said, attunement's the sense of being seen and being heard. And I had a, a podcast guest from Canada named Sarah Schlotty, and she is a trauma therapist from Canada, and she expanded on that. And she said, attunement is the sense of being seen, being heard, feeling felt, and getting gotten. You know, someone who gets your perspective, that makes, that soothes the nervous system. And, you know, like the, the thing with the horse, if, if you think they're trying to bite you and you whack them in the mouth because they're trying to bite you, you're not really seeing what they're trying to present to you. They're kind of going, hey, can I, can I hang with you? You know, can I connect with you sort of thing? And when you can connect with that, especially horses that have had not had that from humans, they're like, oh, finally, you're my kind of people, you know. And so what I found out is what I've been doing is called attunement. And it's kind of the basis of underlying everything I do these days. You know, I do that before the training and that's still a big part of the training as well. So I used to be, you know, my business used to be Warwickshire performance horsemanship because I didn't, you know, a lot of times in the reining business, people are so-and-so performance horses or in the horsemanship world, there's so-and-so horsemanship. I really didn't feel there was a difference between the two of them, the performance and the horsemanship. I thought they both, you know, had the same ideas behind them. And so that's why my business is called that. But here a few years ago, I'm like, yeah, I don't really, I don't show, I don't train show horses anymore. I don't show the reiners. I don't train reiners anymore. So the performance is not really necessary in the title. But I don't like just horsemanship because that puts me under a broad umbrella of a lot of things. And then I'm like, why don't I call it tuned horsemanship? That's what I'm on about these days. So Yeah, it makes sense. And with this whole discussion of com- basically what you're discussing is communicating with a horse. And because they don't speak English, that's hard to do sometimes with, with people, especially in, when you're – I would think the people that are coming to you in your clinics are looking for a, a way to change what they're doing or become better, whatever it may be. And this is a quote I found of yours that I really liked. It says – don't ever touch the rain unless you want something, and don't ever forget you're holding the rain. And that is something I see so much with people is they they're on the rain a little bit, you know, all the time. And easing off the rain gives the horse perspective to go, and getting back on the rain gives the horse perspective to not go. And that's kind of their simplistic way of thinking about it. But I love that saying. I see so many people not aware of their hands. So how do you think people get that point? How do you get that point across to people to give them some rain? And when they do, what's your response to? Because this is what I always get. Well, if I give them rain, they move. So how do you change their mindset? You know, I used to have a uh, thing I would do at clinics where I'd say, there is a there is a $5 fine for pulling on both reins at the same time unless I give you specific instruction to. Because what I found was someone would be sitting there and they'd pick up on the reins and pull on the reins and then put them back down for no reason at all. And I say, you just pulled on both reins. They go, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. And so then I started talking about this five dollar fine. And so instead of telling them they pulled on both reins, they picked up on both reins, when people pick up on both reins, they'd say, yeah, me five bucks. And they'd immediately look down and go, oh, God, I did it. You know, it was almost like getting them to where they would believe it themselves. And you know, I said, if your horse walks off, pick up on one rein, because then you're not telling them to stop. You're saying you can move your feet if you like, but I'm just going to redirect you in this circle, and you can walk, walk, you can walk around there for as long as you want it. And then the horse decides to come to a stop, as instead of being asked to come to a stop. And I think that's the, 
you know, I've always been on about that, even before all the attuned stuff was, I've never really been one to make horses do things. I've been one to get them decide to do things. And, you know, and the, the more I go down this attunement path, you know, the less times I actually have to do that stuff. Because a lot of times that was, you know, like horses that that are anxious and want to walk off and things like that. That's just working with a horse with a dysregulated nervous system. If you can get that, it's sort of before. A lot of times you don't need to do those things. But, yeah, that's kind of how I would, you know, because the thing is, helping people with their horses, you have to be able to explain things or have to say things to them in a way that they're going to understand. And it seems one of the, you know, uh, you know, there's a difference between a skill and a talent. Skill is something that you develop and it, talent seems to be something you have innately I don't sit around all day thinking about ways to explain things it seems my one talent is I can explain things in a way that people get what I'm saying you know I'm I don't think I'm any better with horses than anybody else but I do have the ability to explain things in a way people can understand I remember years ago in Australia there was a lady at a clinic and she had been to a she said I've been to every so-and-so clinic every time he's come to Australia, this is like a big time, everybody would know his name if I said it, I've been to so-and-so's clinics every year since he's been coming to Australia for the last nine years and it wasn't until I came to your clinic that I realised what he was talking about and it's just because I you know, I was explaining things in a way they could understand. So you mentioned earlier that you and your wife both I believe have shown at the World Equestrian Games you've been NRHA champion how have those experiences at that upper level show arena filtered into what you're doing now with trying to get people to improve their communication with their horse, understanding of their horse? So the last time I showed was the World of Question Games in 2018, and I said before that we, our podcast guest, Jane Pike, the first one having the podcast, she came along as our mental coach, and I hadn't actually shown for a number of years because I'd been, I'd stopped training rainers and was doing clinics and you know the two horses we showed we owned them ourselves and uh, we went to WEG I scored the highest I've ever scored like in a three judge scenario I scored higher than one judge but I, in the first round I scored higher than I'd ever done in a three judge scenario and then I made the semi-finals and I scored three points higher in the semi-finals than I had in the first round and so I was out of practice as far as the physical part of showing but I was in a much better mental place than I had been because of probably the therapy I'd been doing and Jane's stuff that she helped me with and that kind of made me realize that huh you know I, you know I showed okay but I wasn't a superstar and I realize now I used to think I wasn't that good I realize now physically I could do the stuff I could train the horse do all that stuff um, but it was the mental part of it was was lacking but also you know that year with Jane helping us get ready and like I said I was doing some therapy and stuff I got to the World of Question Games did really well and then realized that I think the only reason I've ever been showing horses is for the opinion of others external validation and I kind of you know I'd done some work on myself and got to the point where I I don't really care what other people think of me and I realized I'm not really that competitive like I don't I don't really want to show I've been showing for the opinion of other people because then they will think something of me if I win something or whatever and it and it dawned on me there that um yeah I I was competing for all the wrong reasons and so if coming to that epiphany I think 
helps me um, even just sharing that story with some people kind of they they kind of stop and think hmm I wonder why I do some of the things I do you know like I talked earlier about a lot of really successful people are successful for maybe the wrong reasons and so you know you know sharing that story kind of helps people you know so I, I so I do think the experience of showing the Ramos for many years thinking I was showing them for a certain reason and then actually coming to the understanding that I was telling myself a lie and that's not the reason I was doing it um, helps me you know maybe help people with some of their stuff too one of the things I've really tried to do on this podcast is just be really transparent about things and so I'm going to be what you just said was such great insight because I have been there I, I remember I was I've showed my whole life and I was really not enjoying it about five or six years ago but I was showing I was actually showing at the world show and uh, went in and marked high enough nervous wreck in the back once I get in the pen all goes away but the prep is not fun for me mentally but uh, I go in and I score high enough to make it back to the shootout I think there was 75 in the prelims I make the shootout and then we had to wait another four hours to get back into the shootout and during that time I realized like I'm in the back I'm prep 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 I'm a nervous wreck my horse is a nervous wreck it's not going well I'm not getting where I want and then after about I don't know two of those four hours I thought I don't care anymore I want to go eat a hamburger and lay down and don't care so I just I quit worrying about it got off my horse chilled out relaxed about an hour and a half later I go in mark a 227 <laughs> win, win the shootout make it back to the finals and so that was for me that was that that epiphany I had to ask myself and Rob Huddleston and I talked about this on a mental toughness podcast I did who are we trying to impress is it ourselves is it someone else who are we doing this for and I had to realize like I was trying to impress other people I think you know prove to myself I could do it and when in reality what am I have to lose I'm just I'm out here showing a horse having a good time it's what we do every day so why not just go show and have fun that's that's hard for me though yeah you know Jane when she helped us that year for the world of question games one of the things she did early on in the year was like we got a zoom call like this and she asked separately my wife separately for me but uh, she asked us a bunch of questions and then she made an audio track for us to listen to and she said you got to listen to it with stereo headphones and so you listen to it and when it first starts out there's the same Jane talking in both ears and it's about half an hour long but about 10 minutes in one of the Janes keeps talking and a different Jane shows up on the side so you got these two voices going in your head and she said just listen to this thing as much as you can sometimes I'd nod off when I was listening to it or whatever you know and um, so we come to the World of Question Games, and the first in the first go-round I show, and I have never been that relaxed competing in my entire life on a horse, ever. Like, I'm crystal clear, I'm right there, everything's cool. And I come out and I'm like, that was weird. You know, it's a World of Question Games. My ass cheeks are supposed to be clamped pretty tight shut. You know what I mean? And then we make the semifinals. And so I go in there again. And like I said, I'm three points higher in the semifinals. I'm a 220 in the semifinals. And once again, it was the same thing. Just totally clear, totally relaxed, no noise, you know. And I came out of there and it wasn't until I came out of there and I thought, I can't figure out what was different. And then all of a sudden it hit me what was different. 
it wasn't that there's something was there that wasn't there before there was something missing and then i realized you know what was missing that voice in your head that says you suck who do you think you are what do you think you're doing which had always been there and it wasn't till it was missing that I actually even knew it was there because consciously when i'd go show like you only show when you're ready to show and your horse is prepared you know what they can do and you know how hard you can ask them and it's it's not like i would go in there and go oh i suck i would be going in there i've got a plan i know what i'm doing or whatever but this is so that that audio thing she made was a hypnosis thing and the voice that you're not listening to out of those two voices goes into your subconscious and that subconscious is where that that's where all that those negative voices were and so at WEG I just didn't have those negative voices for the first time in my life and I, but I didn't even know they were there you know it's kind of like watching the movie The Sixth Sense when you realize Bruce Willis is dead hang on he was dead 10 minutes ago hang on he was dead in the restaurants you know what I mean it's kind of like that and I kind of look back and like holy cow that voice has always been there but it's been flying under the radar and when you took that away it was a totally different experience that's what's always playing in the back of my mind especially in the prep part is i don't it's hard to switch off the negativity you know what could go wrong there's a lot of people watching what are they going to think what you know that part is hard to turn off and what always perplexed me and i still don't have the answer but like i was saying when i walked in you could walk down the alley at oklahoma city a nervous wreck and the moment you got out of the alley into the arena it's gone and I always wondered how, how I, I never got to the answer, but how do I turn off all that mess going on before? That's just what you said. It's these voices battling in your head of the doubt and the fear and the garbage. It's, I'm sure we all deal with that in some degree. Let me ask you this, too, because you keep pointing to other people, which I like. And in my opinion, to become who we are, willing, we have to be willing to lean on others. Who are some of those people in your life that have been mentors to you, both they don't have to necessarily be horse people, but they maybe shaped your perspective today and and your knowledge of horses. You know, I didn't really have mentors like people have because I think there's a degree of vulnerability in opening yourself up to a mentor. You know, growing up, for me, you either, you know, in my family, you either knew the answer to something or you were stupid. And so whether the answer to something or how to do something, if you either knew it or you were stupid. So you, I became very good at pretending I knew things I didn't know. And that kind of carried over to the, like I'd go to clinics, because at a clinic, everybody's there to be, to learn. So I, I like going to clinics and I definitely want to learn stuff there. But as far as like at horse shows or, you know, they'll go, go around to a trainer that lives near you and go, hey, I suck at rollbacks. Like, can you help me with my rollbacks? You know, for a long time, I didn't have the ability to do that. But someone who did help me a lot unravel that was a friend of mine named Joe Schmidt, trains rainers in Texas, and Joe used to live in California. And because Joe used to impress me, because he would ask anybody anything, and I just watching him do that time and time again really almost gave me permission to to do it to do it too you know what i mean sure kind of in closing here i think that that's what it takes it's this fine balance about authenticity and confidence both and working with horses and people it's just relationships i've talked about that so many times on this podcast today already about building relationships and i think you have to be a confident 
to be successful. Um, and I think that you've created a persona of strength through your physical and mental ability to work with horses. But in reality, what is something that is a fear of yours that people don't know or wouldn't realize from someone who speaks nationally, publicly, all, all over all the time? A fear of mine... Well, I think, you know, I've been, I've been chipping away at them for a while because, I, I, you know, for me, most of my life, if something scared me, I went away from it. And so these days I, I try to aim a bit more towards them. Like two days ago, I picked up a tarantula here because I almost stepped on a tarantula and it scared the hell out of me. I'm like, okay, I picked, the tarantula scares the, hell, scares the hell out of me. I got to let him crawl in my hand and, and pick him up. So, you know. I guess there's a, a lot of you know I've been doing ice baths for about three years now and I used to hate being cold like you know hated being cold and I think that was one of the first things I started doing that I just hated I wouldn't say it was a fear like you're afraid of the cold water but it sucks so I didn't want to do it sort of thing so I've just been slowly getting better at doing things like that you know I've signed up for a thing called the Gaucho Derby which is billed as the world's toughest horse race in Argentina in uh, February and uh that one's outside my comfort zone you know that's you know I've kind of set my life up to where you know I'm kind of just I think I have some ADHD going on and I you know I'm relatively unorganized disorganized and undisciplined a bit and I've signed up for that thing because when you're out there in the middle of Patagonia on a horse and you know because it's a survival race you've got your you've got your tent and all that sort of stuff with you your food you know, I can't be undisciplined and un and unorganized uh, out there because there's some pretty serious consequences. So, you know, that's probably a um, something I'm a fear I'm facing. I'm not even sure what the fears are out there, but I'm sure I'm sure something's going to come up. Well, I've done ice baths, and that is not a fun thing. But you know, people wouldn't think you think it's physical. It's really not. It's mental focus like never you've never had i haven't mm. had uh, i had a friend of mine from california he uh, was really into it and we'd go work out and he's like let's do this ice bath you know and he would have to tell me to breathe because i mean it's a mental focus on breathing to get in that yep. thing it's a tough deal so and and to stay breathing while you're in it without you know so that you don't let yourself get in the sympathetic nervous system right right well i thank you i appreciate your time and especially you don't even know me but you chose to jump on here and give me an hour of your time so i i sure appreciate that and i'll leave links in the description of where people can find your website and your podcast and that kind of thing um so i appreciate you touting journey on thank you very much for giving me your time hey appreciate it good chatting with you you bet Thank you for joining us on Taking the Reins. A special thank you goes to the Mississippi State Extension Service and the MSU Animal and Dairy Sciences Department. Please visit us on Facebook and Instagram at Taking the Reins Podcast.